Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the most powerful experiences of my life was leading a mission trip to the Gulf Coast in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. When we arrived in the summer of 2006, a little less than a year after that massive storm had devastated that region of the United States, we were utterly shocked to see how overwhelming the damage was all those many months later. The rubble of destroyed homes was visible almost everywhere. Boats were still lodged in the branches of trees. People were still living in trailers provided by FEMA. Our work that week was mainly to remove rubble from destroyed homes and to help with the cleanup. Our host told us quite pointedly that it would be years before the rebuilding would actually begin in earnest. Ten years later, I led another mission trip to that same area, but instead of staying in the little town of Hurlington, Mississippi, just about 20 minutes outside of New Orleans, we stayed in the city of New Orleans itself. In many ways, the city had recovered at least the more affluent areas. Homes and businesses had been rebuilt and life had gone on as it had before the storm. But that wasn't the case in the Lower Ninth Ward. One of the poorest areas of the city, that district, one of the most densely populated and diverse areas of the Crescent City, was still struggling to recover from Katrina a decade after the wind and waves had been stilled. It was this impoverished area of New Orleans situated in one of the lowest lying areas of the city, just along the Mississippi River and the canals that drain into it that had been the most devastated by the hurricane and the flooding that followed it. As the levees that held back the river and the canals failed, the district flooded with 12 feet of water and sludge. For weeks, this toxic stew saturated and boiled everything in the ward, forever destroying homes and livelihoods in that place. Even as New Orleans rebuilt in the years after the storm, the Lower Ninth Ward remained destroyed and deserted. There wasn't enough money to remove the debris, and the concern was that it wasn't safe to even attempt rebuilding in that space. When we arrived in the summer of 2015, our group was assigned to work with Project Homecoming, a ministry of the Presbyterian Church USA that sought to clean up and rebuild areas of the Lower Ninth Ward that were deemed safe and habitable. We were matched with a project that had been ongoing for several months when we arrived. It was the rebuilding of a home for an 86-year-old woman whose house had been destroyed by the flooding in 2005. She had been living with her daughter in Mandeville about an hour across Lake Pontchartrain for the entire decade since the storm had destroyed her home. For more than 10 years, she had waited patiently for the resources to be allotted to rebuild the home that she had occupied since she'd moved to that area as a new bride in 1946. By the time we arrived, Nancy's house was already well underway. 
the building crews had salvaged as much as they could from the rubble of her old home and had used some of those materials in the construction of her new home. The structure was completely walled in and our job was to work on putting down new flooring and painting the walls. And we worked diligently at those tasks. As we worked, Nancy would come by and visit with us as she was able. She would tell us stories of her life in that house with her husband Morton and their children. Mort had been a drummer and a construction worker, and Nancy was a singer and a cook. Her stories carried us back to an era when New Orleans was the center of jazz and blues, and they were at the height of their popularity and influence. We all grew to love Nancy as that week progressed. That's why it was so devastating for many of us to realize that we wouldn't finish Nancy's house before we left. There was too much work remaining to be completed. When Nancy saw the disappointment on the faces of many of the members of our group, she quickly chastised us. You've done your part. None of us can do everything. We do the part we're given, and we hand things on to those who come after us. That's how life works. Nancy's words proved to be a lesson that many of us needed to hear then, and of which most of us need to be reminded with some regularity. All of our readings today point to that great truth. We are all part of that glorious and endless procession of God's people who have yearned for a better world and have given our lives to the work of seeing that world realized. Malachi, the last of the great prophets of the Hebrew tradition, sought to speak words of hope to a people who had almost given up on God and each other. Corrupt political and religious leadership weakened the nation and held the temple captive. God seemed to be silent at best and absent at worst. But in the midst of this season of despair, Malachi dared to look toward a future when an ethical and courageous leader would renew the faith of the Hebrew people and establish a just and peaceful rule. His refusal to accept the status quo inspired a weary people to keep going. Luke picks up on that theme and writes of the days preceding Jesus' ministry. In the midst of that time of struggle, when many had given up hope of ever being free of oppression at the hands of foreign powers, Luke tells us of the thunderous ministry of John the Baptist, who arrived on the scene with a thunderclap that awakened even the hardened of hearts. John dared to challenge the status quo and to call those of all socio and economic situations to account. He spoke of hope and transformation of a future not determined by the powers that be, but rather by the God who was coming to restore all things to a state of justice and peace. Yet neither Malachi nor John were the messengers they announced. Their words, however powerful and inspiring, did not bring into being the hope which they had proclaimed. Instead, they provided a bridge from the way things were to the way things 
could be. These messengers played an essential role in the ongoing pilgrimage from a broken world to a new creation. But much like Moses, who led God's people out of slavery and into freedom through 40 years of wilderness wandering, yet only catching a glimpse of the promised land. These figures kept the faith and handed off the task of moving forward to those who would come after them. The Apostle Paul played much the same role for the congregations he helped to start. Paul preached passionately of God's steadfast love in Christ and taught all who would listen the ways of love and justice. He helped to establish and nurture communities of faith across the Greco-Roman world and rooted them in an unyielding hope in the coming beloved community of God's reign. Yet for all his work, Paul plays only a small role for a set period of time in the life of these communities. He helps to select and train leaders for them and then places the responsibility for leading these communities in the hands of those leaders and the spirit who guides them. Paul entrusts them to the care of one who has called him and them, knowing that it is ultimately God who will bring the beloved community to birth among them. If you read closely, there is a sense of bittersweetness in Paul's words in Philippians. He has such tremendous love for the Christians at Philippi, yet he knows that his time with them has come to a close. They are in God's hands now, and the God who has called them is faithful to see them through every circumstance that they will face on the journey toward the beloved community. Paul rejoices in that truth, even as hints of sadness and grief cling to the edges of his words. He misses them and prays earnestly for their strength and well-being, knowing that God is ultimately able to do far more than he could ever ask or imagine. To some extent, all of us play that role at some point in our lives. We are called to certain tasks for a period of time, and we strive to be as faithful as we can in those moments. And when we are called to another setting, we must let go, trusting that the one who has called us will be faithful to complete the work that was begun long before we ever arrived. When I accepted the call to be your pastor and teacher almost four years ago, none of us had any idea how long I would be here. Like many pastors, I had naive ideas that this could be the position from which I retired. But I knew what we all know deep inside. Life is fleeting and unpredictable. None of us could have known that the world as we know it would come crashing down around us in the worst global pandemic in a century. We couldn't have known, nor could we have foreseen the downturn in my sister's health. Instead, we entered this pastoral relationship, picking up what was handed to us 
and walking forward with faith and integrity, as much faith and integrity as we could muster. And now we come to the end of our time together. As we come to this time of parting, we give thanks for the good that we have done, we acknowledge our failings, and we hand off this ministry to those who will come after me, knowing that the God who has called us together is faithful still through every circumstance of life. That's really the Christian hope. Not so much in the grandiose vision of cosmic renewal in some future cataclysmic event, but rather in the slow and steady transformation of the universe through unyielding faith and dogged determination. With every day we keep going, with every act of kindness and compassion, with every faithful transition from one to another, the beloved community of God's reign and rule draws ever nearer to reality. Amen.